And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolfhard. Oh, hang on. It's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Jack Dan on the Coot Street Podcast. It's great to have you back on the podcast. I think we lost World Fantasy Convention uh, when you were there with Gardner as well. Well, if you recall, that was probably one of your more sillier podcasts. <laughs> It was one of our louder podcasts. We, we, well, we've we had, had we've, fun. Well, we heard, had a lot of fun. We, we did hear from a couple of listeners who said they had to turn down the volume. <laughs> well. But uh, well, one of the things we were talking about then, and we can talk about it again now, because uh, in addition to the, the wonderful fiction and novels, which I have always admired, and I think things like the Memory Cathedral are classics that, ought to be recognized. We were talking then and again now about your work as an anthologist, and uh, and you have an, a forthcoming anthology. But one of the things that occurred to me when I was looking back on this, and Jonathan, you're the one that made me think of this because you've got The Drowned Worlds yes. coming out. And, and Jack, you did these, I used to love theme anthologies about science fiction stories. And, and one of the classic theme anthologies is in the field of fire, which was in a sense, the definitive Vietnam period anthology. And then you, you did all those things with exclamation points, and you did things about sports and crime and that sort of thing. And I always thought that, and, and the reason I thought of this with, with Drowned Worlds is because that's another kind of theme anthology, which is very current and very meaningful, but we don't see as many of those, it seems, as we used to. You know, that, that is interesting. I guess what, what I'm wondering, uh, I mean, Gardner Dozois and I had a, a wonderful time editing, uh, editing the exclamation points anthologies, which we didn't put the exclamation points in, I might add. <laughs> uh, I wonder if it's a question, is it a question of demand of being able to, uh, uh, to sell them? You know, I I don't know, Jonathan. You're you're the maven here. You can probably answer that much better than I could. My main answer to that would be twofold. First of all, things have been absorbed by the Kickstarter environment, where you did see some uh, theme kind of anthologies. You've seen a change in attitude mm. from one or two major publishers because what it came down to was that Daw and Ace were publishing an awful lot of theme anthologies, and those are the ones that have dried up. Um, yeah, that's there are still, I mean, depending on how you choose to define theme, quite a few coming out. I mean, you look at books like The Mammoth Book of Cthulhu, those sorts of things, The Mammoth Book of Diesel Punk, The Mammoth Book of Steampunk. Uh, they're all theme-type anthologies. What you tend not to get, and I'm not sure how much I, I mourn them, are things like, you know, vampire ra raccoons on holiday islands or something, you know. Those sort of things which yeah, used to be yeah. whimsical books that came from Marty Greenberg's school. And even some of those got picked up by Fiction River, which is the Chris Rush, Dean Smith thing. They're mm -hmm. doing one of those every month or two. So they still come around. The question is more, do they get the same prominence? And I think the great challenge for anthologists right now, and this is something Jack would share, and something that's going to uh, impact on what, it, what I, I think and what he's doing for his main thing, we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, is giving re uh, authors the two things they need the most when they write, and they hand their, their writing on to a publisher, and that is an audience and, money, and payment. 
and short fiction, because there's so much short fiction published right now, struggles to find an audience. There's a reliable overall audience, but for individual works, it's really hard, and individual works of fiction tend to disappear, and anthologies are no better in many ways than magazines or online sites for that. There's, there's just... Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Gary, go on, buddy. No, no, that, that's... Uh, no, Jack, we want to hear from you, but I do have a point I want to make, which is disagreeing yeah. with Jonathan a bit. But Jack, you go ahead first. No, 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 I want to, wait, that's a narrative hook, let me have it. <laughs> I would make a distinction between special interest anthologies, such as Vampire Cthulhu's on Venus, and theme anthologies. For example, I actually, being a college professor, I actually taught in the field of fire once many years ago. It was a wonderful way of approaching the idea of a war which was recent in memory and yet imaginable in the future. A couple of years ago, I taught a course on sustainability in literature. If I'd had drowned worlds available, I would have assigned that. In other words, these are anthologies that can move be instead of being niche anthologies, they can actually move beyond the mainstream anthology market and generate some interest among, uh, in the case of Jonathan, your new anthology, sustainability studies, or in the case of, uh, of some of Jack's anthologies, well, the Jewish science fiction anthology, uh, going way back, uh, I heard was taught once in a Jewish studies course. So yes, that, I think, you know, is I broadening. Remember. Go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 keep going. Um, my point is that anthologies like that potentially broaden the market rather than narrow it. You know, I I would agree with that. The The, the problem is, and I think this is the problem with with for most authors, editor, anthologists, everyone is that there's so much white noise out there that you know uh, the, unless you can, to my mind, unless you can you can sell the project to a commercial publisher who can who has the publicity apparatus to uh, to move the project you're kind of doomed, and it's very difficult. I mean, uh, Jonathan, Mr. Brilliant Guy there, uh, has been <laughs> able to uh, to skip on the top of that with, with, with uh, you know, with publishers who who have been able to, to, to publicize, but it's very difficult to get interest, I have found, uh, from many of the commercial publishers. Well, I think that's okay, true. I, I think one more thing. Yeah. 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 Go on. Oh, you say. Yeah. So you go. <laughs> I was going to say that it is my experience that over the last ten years, starting about two thousand and ten, the interest in, from commercial publishers in publishing anthologies has waned, and where pub, you know, anthologies were routinely coming out from major publishers based in Manhattan or or London in two thousand and seven, say, or two thousand and eight. By 2012, most of those anthologies had moved down to, at best, if you're fortunate, large independent publishers who are terrific to deal with but didn't have quite the same reach, and maybe uh, they moved down to small press. And I only mean down in terms of commercial scope, not quality, um, mm. or even down to kickstarted self-published projects if, if, if you were sort of really going to struggle to find a broader audience. You know, so it, it's... I think if you actually look at it, the market for anthologies has significantly contracted. It's on a, a down cycle at the moment. 
And the challenge for the, the anthology and the anthologist and for the short fiction market is to find a way to change that, to, to help individual works get attention. I mean, there's, I mean, you, Jack, you were quite rightly, I think, referring to white noise. And white noise is a pretty good way of looking at it. Uh, particularly when you realize that those individual elements of white noise are actually individual stories getting published all the time. You know, there are 10, 12, 15, 20,000 stories published every year. Who knows? And they're published in weird ways. I was just listening to Monica Byrne, the author of The Girl in the Road, perform as, as a TED Talk a new science fiction short story. Um, hmm. I was reading a couple of days ago the advanced reader copy of Jack's new anthology, Dreaming in the Dark. That's a source of short stories. I was reading on my Kindle an issue of Asimov's. That's a short source of short stories. Um, I was looking at the new Joe Abercrombie short story collection. Three of the stories in there were originally published as bonuses in paperback editions of his of his novels, and got completely overlooked. You know, so how you get attention for a particular work really tricky. It's actually one of the major challenges, and this is a side issue we won't go out on, uh, in getting attraction for your story maybe to get up for something like a Hugo Award. Getting enough readers to have read it, to vote for it, to just to get over the 5% rule, never mind anything else, is very hard. Yes, and and that, and I think that this is, this is in good part because when the paradigm changed with, with, uh, with the, the, the electronic, uh, publishing phenomenon, uh, the what we could, what we sarcastically call the gatekeepers, i.e. those places where we can look for quality, uh, has been very muted. So we used to look at Asimov. We used to look at FNSS. Uh, there were you know there were a number of uh, uh, of lanterns you know shine you know shining light, and that was the you know there were certain places where if you published. You would get people to uh, uh, to look at your work. I mean, Lucia Shepard once said, you know, if you publish in all of the magazines in, in in a given month, you know, you can create, you know, you create a buzz. I don't think you can. That you know, that's that's all dead now. It's it's mm. certainly a different thing. Well, yeah, it's well. When I mean dead, I mean that was. That was, you know, obvious choices. It's not obvious anymore. There's a thousand roads to Rome. I think so. that's true. Let, let me perhaps shift the focus of this conversation because it's interesting to talk about anthologies as a theoretical thing. But what I really want to talk to you about as a starting point for a lot of this is your personal experience where you pick up, you're living in Binghamton, New York, right? Which for anybody outside <laughs> of New York State is like, middle of bloody nowhere it's like some kind of little town i don't know anyway so there you are in 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 the wilds of binghamton known for being a recluse uh in september of 1993 you make the interest or august of 1993 it must have been late august you make the life choice that you're going to attend worldcon you meet your future wife janine webb world fantasy award-winning editor and world fantasy award nominated writer janine webb you pack up and move to australia and in within a few months <laughs> yeah, I know, like a no <laughs> So by 1998, you're publishing Dreaming Down Under with HarperCollins and telling us it's a golden age of science fiction in Australia in 1998. How'd you get to that I point? I didn't say that Harlan did. <laughs> well, but you repeated it. I mean, I mean, you repeated that in the introduction. I looked at that. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with you, but I mean, I'm really interested in how you got there. Well, as in that first introduction, when, when I was doing that gig with, uh, uh, with Hall and Ellison and Terry Dowling, etc., and, and Hall had leaned over and said, do you guys realize, you know, that, you know, you're in the, you know, you're in the middle of the golden age. This, <clears throat> if you look at the first Greening book, it's, it's 20 years ago. Uh, it was what, a 19, uh, anyway. Uh, for me, I just saw all of this talent. As did, you know, uh, and it, it just blew me away. And so, you know, we had, Janine and I had an agenda with Greening Down Under to show everyone that, uh, that there's all this great stuff being done here. And it just wasn't being seen the way it is now. I mean, look at the World Fantasy Awards. Look at the, the impact that Australian uh, genre fiction has been having internationally. And, you know, that's within, I think, 20 years. Definitely. Unless I'm myopic, which no, no, you're talking you know, about I could right. be accused of. But, there, I mean, okay, you published uh, publish Dreaming. Uh, I think it features about 30 writers. It comes out in 1998. Uh, wonderful Stathopoulos cover. It's published by HarperCollins' Voyager here in Australia who at that time were in the real flush of their first growth as a major, major imprint, buoyed on the sales of Sarah Douglas's books. Yeah. It, it goes to World Fantasy, I think the World Fantasy Convention, I believe won the World Fantasy Award for Best Anthology that year. Comes out from, yes. comes out from tour in the US as well, which was wonderful. Yes. And then 10 years pass, right? And you check back in in 2008, with Dreaming Again, which also comes out from HarperCollins here in Australia. What was your perception right. of the move from the, the, the Australian science fiction world of Dreaming Down Under to Dreaming Again? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I think... Uh, I think it's pretty much what I was talking about with dreaming in the dark in that the first stage in quote of 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 Jack and Janine's agenda was to you know was to get other people looking at what we were doing and and look I, with everything I'm saying here God forbid I sound like I'm bragging this was just a small piece a very small piece of what was happening and what, you know, what other people were doing. Gardening, selling millions of books, etc., etc. Uh, <laughs> so it was, I think, dreaming, again, was more uh, pulling everything together, showing, you know, basically a mirror of what was happening 10 years later. And did you... And, and this book, yeah, go on, go on. I was going to say, did you feel You're there was... Hard well, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I think it's, it's, it's good to try to answer it because, I mean, I can see between 98 and 2008 a generational change. Already the market had changed. By 2008, yeah. Voyager, which was a science fiction fantasy imprint in Australia and the foremost one, had primarily become an epic fantasy imprint. 
which was completely understandable for commercial right. owners. The small press system uh, scene in Australia had changed. The Eidolon and Aurealis setting of the late 1990s had become the agog and Cat Sparks kind of published world and Russell Farr, Ticonderoga published world of 2008. Um, right. We were seeing, I feel, and I think this is reflected in Dreaming Down On and Dreaming Again, a rise of dark fantasists and fantasists rather than science fiction writers. I think well, it was very hard to tell science fiction yeah. o over this, this yeah. period. Yeah. I mean, fantasy overwhelmed Australia, certainly. Yeah, because if you go back to the time of Dreaming Down Under in 1998, you know, major writers like of the moment, like like Sean McMullen, like Simon Brown, like Sean Williams, to pick three guys to start off with, and that's a change yeah. as well. Those three guys are selling science fiction novels to, to Harper and to Tor. By 2008, right. you know, it's, at, at least in terms of, you know, if you look around, you know, sort of Karen Warren selling major uh, dark fantasy novels to Angry Robot, uh, you're seeing the rise of people like Kim Westwood, who is writing science fiction. You're seeing Kristen McDermott come along. You're seeing a whole bunch of other people come along. And you're also, by 2008, I think, if my timing's right, seeing 12th Planet Press start to come on the scene. So you publish yes. Dreaming Again. It gets great reviews. You're busy. Uh, you move on to being busy. You're writing your novels. You're working on your PhD. How do you get to the point where we're now in 2016, where later this year you'll publish the third Dreaming Anthology, Dreaming in the Dark, and becoming a publisher, Jack? Well, this is... <laughs> so shoot me. Uh, okay, this is... how. I... Let, me, let me try to take this apart. Uh, what I see happening now, when uh, Dreaming Again was published, this paradigm was shifting. Not only uh, what we've been talking about uh, in terms of elect you know electronic publishing, but also we were seeing you know. Uh, uh, this wave of fantasy, which in a sense could be, I mean, this happened years before that with King and Horror, if you remember. Uh, <clears throat> now, I think what's important is that with this difficult paradigm shift, authors in Australia are navigating this extraordinarily well. Uh, there's a number of small press publishers who, as I've mentioned, become home to many uh, writers who are doing very well and have commercial publishers. And I still think, I wouldn't call it a movement, but I still see a zeitgeist happening here. I see a real excitement. I see uh, a, I see these publishers maturing, doing it tough, but putting out all of this wonderful stuff. And uh, and in many ways, functioning as the the large mainstream publishers used to, you know, 
you know, not Random House, et cetera, et cetera, which were like the publishers now, a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of people who were enthusiastic. Uh, <clears throat> so, so why am I involved well, in being a publisher of all things? Because and, and, I want to buy great stuff. Well, actually, let's make that make a bit more sense for listeners, too, because we're about to talk about something that most people really aren't aware of, which is the launching, the uh, debut of PS Australia, which is the Australian imprint of Peter Crowther's PS Publishing. How did that come about, and what are you doing? Okay. Okay. Uh, to step back one, uh, I've always been a fan of, of like folio books, beautifully published books, limited editions, uh, and, uh, you know, as, as a package for, you know, you know, you know, as, as art. And, uh, I've always loved the stuff that, uh, that, that Pete and Nikki, who PS, uh, did. It's limited edition and, you know, I also believe, as you had mentioned earlier, that authors need to be paid. They need to be supported. And as a writer, <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, the, when the Memory Cathedral got a, a leather-bound Eastern Press edition. I mean, I was really thrilled, you know, just to hold that as an artifact. Okay, so that's that's personal. Uh, three years ago, uh, we were at Royal Fantasy in Brighton. I had a meeting with, with Pete and Nikki, and I said, <coughs> it would be great if we could publish Australian authors, you know, with beautiful books. I'd like to get them seen in Great Britain, you know, by, by those Specialist and other collectors, and uh, and I just like to uh, become another market for Australian publishing. And Pete and Nikki were were very enthusiastic. Janine leaned over when we were trying to figure out what to call and said, "How about PS Australia?" I.e., as opposed to Jack Day and does something else again. And, uh, and, and the showcase volume to open up the line is the Dreaming in the Dark, uh, collection. And, uh, <coughs> the idea for that is I was just going to buy stories that, that knocked me out, however long it was going to take. So this wasn't a theme anthology. And, uh, <coughs> How much science fiction am I buying? I'm looking at quality. And, and Jonathan, I agree with you. Things have moved, uh, in a sense, away from, uh, from, from SF in the main. But there's, there's all of this stuff that's kind of in the middle, uh, which is which is just so gnarly and interesting. I mean, you mentioned Kim Westwood. Uh, she wrote a story where she extrapolates uh, 
uh, a future Australian language. And if you can hang on, you suddenly find yourself, you know, like thinking in colors. So I'm I'm kind of, yeah, I'm looking at the stuff that knocks me out, whatever it is. Let's take a step back. You've, you go to Brighton World Fantasy. You talk to Pete and Nikki Crowther. You agree that you're going to start a line PS Australia, and it's going to be an imprint of uh, PS Publishing, and you are yeah. going to be the editor-in-chief publisher of this imprint for them. First, yeah, the MD, as they say. It's like being the MD of my living room. We're not talking <laughs> thousands. Of, uh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> okay, so. Because we're just a bunch of people, and if I can interject, you don't, as you well know this, Mr. Publisher, you don't do this for the money, you do no. it for love. Sure. And, well, uh, and it ends up costing you money in a sense in terms of time, but it, I think it's, I think it's worth it. I think it can be, but I mean, it's, okay, okay Gary, go ahead, Gary. Just, a, just a, a question, are you going to be publishing the same limited, the same size limited editions that PS does in the UK? Okay. All of this is, is, is still <laughs> being worked out. Yes, it will be limited edition. Uh, uh, we will be doing, you know, paperbacks, uh, so that, uh, you know, which will be, you know, which will be more readily available. Yeah. But, but this is, <clears throat> this is a specialist venture, uh, and I don't, you know, I consider it as being complementary to the other publishers here who are doing such great stuff and who I absolutely support and will continue to do so. Uh, you know, we're not looking to cut into the market. We're looking to, to somehow engage and enlarge it. Can I ask you? And this isn't big publishing. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand it's not big publishing. And I've got, a lot, I've got a lot of respect for the work that's being done, I think. You know, we've got 20 plus years of Ticonderoga uh, publications out there, and it's been doing a wonderful job with Russell Farr. We've got, what it was, 10 or so years of Elisa Kresenstein's 12th Planet Press. We've got Tahani Wesley's Press. There's some publishing coming out of Canberra. There's all kinds of things happening. And there's a lot of work of, uh, of merit being done, um, a lot of focus, a lot of change, which is great. Um, I think Australia's become a very important part of the view, you know, the, the move to women in science fiction, which is brilliant. With PS Australia, give us an idea of, of of the scale of the scope. How many titles a year are you looking to acquire? Is there a general rule of thumb? I mean, I know P, I mean, PS publishes a lot of titles in the UK, and that's wonderful. They generally do what about a five hundred copy limited edition sort of thing, which is also great. Here, here in Australia, are you, are you talking about six titles a year, two titles a year, twelve titles a year? What's the kind of scale of thing you're hoping to to, to do? Okay, we're Okay, we're feeling out what we can do. Now, uh, I have already bought two, three, four, five, six. Okay, I've, I've bought eight, uh, <laughs> eight volumes to the, at this point. I'm not looking to be putting out 12 titles a month. I mean, I'm spending someone else's money. Sure. I mean, this is, this is, wait, you of all people know this is money that comes out of the pocket of of people like us. Sure. But so, if you're, what if you're doing that? Yeah. So we're 
we're kind of we're seeing where we're going and we'll and we'll keep uh negotiating and making decisions as we go. But right now we've got Dreaming in the Dark coming out. I bought uh I bought uh and, and the next book if if everything goes as planned will be uh, a collection from Margot Lanigan uh called Phantom Limbs. Wow. And uh I I've bought uh, a collection from Sean Williams. I bought a not novella from Alan Baxter uh, Veni Armano, who's a, a fine, <clears throat> uh, basically mainstream publisher who's, who's publishing, uh, <clears throat> in the genre. Uh, <clears throat> and I've got some other writers working. So we're looking at taking it, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, it's still morning here. We're looking at taking it slowly. Uh, and what I'm looking to do is to be able to publish each of these titles uh, in the best way possible, so that the so that the author will want to have it on his table, so that readers will you know enjoy that whole that whole experience, and uh, and we get to pay we get to support the authors because we you know we're paying up front. Fair enough. Win, you're pub. You're a pub. You're, you're a managing director for a publisher, which is one role. But right. the, the two things that you are primarily, you know, deep down inside, when it comes to this sort of things, you're a writer and a creator yourself, and you're That's an editor. Right. Editors, whether they admit it to themselves or not, have tastes, preferences, and agendas. And a That's publishing right. imprint is a tool. It is a tool yes. that you can use to craft the environment around you. Do you have an agenda for Australian science fiction and fantasy when you publish it? Is there something you're looking to promote? You know, the only thing I'm looking to promote is quality. I mean, it's for me, it's, it's the shiver factor. So whether, it, you know, if it's fantasy, if it's science fiction, uh, if it's... Uh, you know, weird, if it's in the middle, if it's postmodern, whatever it is, it's just got to knock me out so that I want to say, look, uh, take a look at this. It's wonderful. And I also try to buy out of my comfort uh, range. I think that's important for, sure. for an editor. But in terms of an agenda, I just want to, I want to add to the mix. I want to I want to support the the wonderful stuff that's being done, and I also want to support the stuff that readers will love, but that is but that's not necessarily overtly commercial. Okay, Let me... I want to publish the commercial stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. I you know, I want to survive. Let me ask you this because this is important in terms of what I think what you're trying to do with Best Australia, which I think is really interesting and really worthwhile. In Dreaming Down Under and in Dreaming Again, you did serve what I call survey anthologies. You were providing snapshots of the state of the science fiction field at that time, particularly in 1998 when you went out and you sought to find, you know, uh, Bertram Chandler's stories. You know, Chandler was dead, but you want to represent him in the book. George Turner, he also passed away, but you want to represent him in the book. Uh, and then again, you know, Dreaming, uh, Dreaming Again, you know, the, the books are, you know, are, 
about the same sort of dimension dreaming again dreaming down under there are about 30 stories we come to dreaming in the dark and the feeling i'm get, getting from you is that you're not it's not necessarily supposed to be a survey anthology this is more a as you say a showcase for the publisher but do you feel the ingredients? Well, no, no. Do you feel the ingredients? The authors are there. I mean, three quarters of the authors in Dreaming in the Dark have appeared in previous Dreaming books. Are there the new yeah. writers there to support a fourth or fifth Australian small press? Do you think? Yes, I, I'm hoping there there are. I think that. The writers that the work that I'm seeing, there's there there's 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 authors who I want to buy, and uh, and look, I, I know that you're right when you say that the that these anthologies uh, could be considered survey anthologies, but that's not really what they were in intention. I was just looking for work. Or we were looking for work, Janine and I, uh, that would not, you know, that would knock us out. And I mean, I'm looking, I mean, I'm looking for the authors like, you know, Rurik Davidson, uh, who, who do stuff that not, that, that knocks me out. And I guess I'm an optimist at heart. I just think there's, there's enough talent here. To a fine and B to support, i.e., established talent. Well, let me throw in another a similar idea because I, I agree that the uh, it seemed to me that Dreaming Down Under, which is the last one I read, I, I, I did not read the sequel to that, was was a science fiction anthology centrally. There were a lot of tendrils that moved out from that, and both of you have mentioned that in Australia, and I think this is true worldwide. That uh, science, that core science fiction readership has expanded in two different ways. One direction is toward commercial fantasy, commercial horror, blockbusters, uh, and so forth, which is which is interesting, but not that interesting. And it's expanded in another way. You mentioned having a book of stories by Margot Lanigan. Um, It's expanded in the direction of unclassifiable authors, who nevertheless appeal to science fiction readers. And it strikes me that when you're when you're putting together an anthology that doesn't have a literary agenda, and if you're a science fiction guy to begin with, or a science fiction person to begin with, wouldn't you almost unconsciously be looking for science for stories, whether or not they are definable as science fiction, that would look really cool to science fiction readers? By that I mean Lanigan. You know, uh I'll answer that, but I can answer that, if that makes sense, because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what the, 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 the little man that I call the unconscious is doing. But, uh, you know, I love it when I, when I see, uh, when I see SS. <laughs> but, you know, I also love the fantasy that I'm seeing. And, and, you know, I'm, you know, looking at the, at the Dreaming in the Dark contents list, there's a lot of fantasy. A lot of the, 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 the weirdest stuff, uh, is science fiction, like the story that I was, t- the story I mentioned by Tim Westwood, uh, mm-hmm. is science fiction in nature. But, you know, and, and, you know, James Bradley wrote an SF story, 
Uh, Paul Brandon wrote, wrote a lovely fantasy. Sean wrote, uh, an SF story, Sean Williams, as did Sean McMullen. Uh, but it, it, it almost, you know, I, I'm afraid to say this because I haven't done my homework, but it feels like it's almost broken down somehow half and half, uh, with, with fantasy and science fiction and some of the writers who, as Jonathan mentioned, Simon Brown, who, you know, are basically known for their SF, uh, here has written a fantasy. So, uh, I guess what I'm, I'm suggesting. Actually, pardon me? Go ahead. I, I actually, everything that we've talked about, I agree with in, in the, the overwhelming, uh, prominence of fantasy. But when I'm editing, that's not my agenda. It's whatever the work, if it catches me and does that reader thing and intrigues me, then I'm interested. That doesn't answer well, it, does it? <laughs> well, it, it does, and it, it, it's, it's true of your earlier anthologies as well. I'm, I'm trying to talk about something which is more Difficult to define and possibly more inchoate, but it's... Well, okay, let me ask this of Jonathan, since he's doing the year's best fantasy and science fiction. It seems to me you can't do an anthology like that with half the stories are going to appeal to science fiction readers and the other half are going to be exclusively fantasy readers. You have to have a kind of story that will appeal to a kind of reader, which, for lack of a better term, I'm simply provisionally calling a science fiction reader. There are things that those of us who like science fiction think of as cool stories, even though they might be fantasy stories. I think I see where you're coming from, but it's not what I'm doing particularly. I okay. Think, okay. I do think that there are, for want of a better term, but to put, put, put a label on it here, slipstream kind of stories that blur the boundaries between science fiction and fantasy in a really interesting way, and they form an element of what I do, and I can see it in what Jack's editing and have always seen it in what Jack's editing because they tend to be lit somewhat literary, somewhat experimental, really kind of interestingly structured, whatever else. There are stories like that in Dreaming Down Under and Dreaming Again. Jack himself writes that way in a really wonderful right. way, okay? So, without a doubt. However... Look, what, I, I think... You, yes, Jack? Yeah, sorry. Go. No, go, go, go. She's so, like, what I, I'm looking to do, actually, is not to find uh, slipstream stories but to find readers who like to read science fiction and fantasy. I believe that the idea of a strictly science fiction reader or a strictly fantasy reader is a greater fiction than the idea that, you know, you need to find uh, works that blur the boundaries to, to satisfy another kind of reader. I don't believe most readers actually are core just science I'm not fiction readers. So. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. Go, go ahead. Anyway, so, so that's... But, uh, so that's, that's, that's what, what, how I see it. I, I mean, I put together a book that I figure is 40% straight science fiction, 40% straight 20, fantasy, 20% something else. Well, this may tell us something about the short fiction market and maybe more relevant to... And both of you know a lot more about this than I do, so I, I'm willing to defer. I do think that there are readers at novel length who read exclusively fantasy and exclusively one kind of fantasy and other readers who read exclusively science fiction. I think those markets begin to blur together when you're looking at short fiction. And I think there is also this additional dimension, which you 
could describe as literary or slipstream, or could just describe as well-structured quality stories uh, that appeal to these readers. My, 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 this is going to sound really horrible, but it may be that short story readers are, as a group, more sophisticated than novel readers. I don't buy that. No, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to buy that, and I don't believe that a reader of a Greg Egan story is in any way more sophisticated, or, or a Margot Lanigan story, or a Kelly Link story, or an Amy Bender story, or a George Saunders story, is any more sophisticated than the reader of a Kim Stanley Robinson novel, or a Norman Spinrad novel, or a. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. I mean eclecticism. You, you mentioned Greg Egan and Margot Lanigan. I know, and I am one of them, uh, a number of readers, a large chunk of readers, who can equally enjoy a Greg Egan story and a Margot Lanigan story, even though they might seem to be in separate genres. Uh, my point is not that, that short story readers are inherently more sophisticated, but maybe more eclectic, maybe more willing to read all the stories that would appear in Dreaming in the Dark, as stories rather than this one is in my genre and that one's not. I tend to think that novel readers more likely are to pick up something that says this is in my genre and that one's not. It, it may be, and I'm going to throw this question to Jack because I've got a look, reason look, for it. That, look, that, that may, that may, when we're talking commercial publishing, uh, yeah. I'm sure all of these iterations, you know, are, 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 are correct. To, to some degree, but I think when we're talking small press, we're talking uh, we're talking about a different animal that attracts uh, different readers. It's a, it's it's a it's it's a it's, it's a smaller audience. Those who are often engaged with the genre, and uh, and they may tout it to their friends. Which will, you know, which will generate, you know, a larger audience. Uh, I mean, for instance, we have book launches here in Australia, something that's not really big in the, in, in the States. And, uh, we're talking, we're really talking a different level of engagement and, and, and frankly sales. Uh, because most small publishers don't have the apparatus, you know, the, the PR apparatus to try to reach, you know, all of those variegated audiences. Uh, it's much easier now, in, in, in a sense, with, with the Internet. I mean, this is a whole different conversation, and I don't, you know, I don't even know where to start with it. But from my own perspective, I want to buy the material that knocks me out and find those who who will be interested in it. Uh, and, you know, uh, and maybe in a small way, this is what a lot of the, the commercial publishers are doing. Certainly, certainly Bain has, has a large interactive audience and they, right. you know, and they use that uh, commercially. Uh, I should, I, I might also mention that the books that, that I did with Gardner that, that, uh, that you had mentioned, Gary, had gone over to Bain online, and they're doing very well. Oh, really? So, I didn't know that. yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're actually making 
in quotes, royalties. I mean, it's not allowing me to go to Venezuela the day after tomorrow, but it's also, you know, it's also not $10. So, uh, but for me, and maybe this is because I'm an old guy, uh, it's hard for me to see where any of this is going because it all seems to be, to be shifting as we talk about it. You know, the many ways to, uh, to promote work. And, uh, look, I'll be as, uh, uh, I'll try to be as current as possible and as experimental as possible. But like all of my pals running small presses, we're in a sense doing this in many ways ourselves. You know, when I, when I was in corporate life, I'd have, you know, 20 people doing that. Well, actually, let me ask you this, Jack. I mean, you've touched on the idea of currency for a second there. How much um, outreach do you feel you need to do for PS Australia, going out looking for newer writers, writers who maybe you haven't dealt with very much uh, up to this point uh, or who maybe haven't been in your books so far? Is there a feeling that PS Australia really needs, as the editor for PS Australia, you need to be getting out there even more and, and discovering new people? Yeah, I mean, when I look at dreaming, Okay, the, 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 the new dreaming. I mean, I want a story by Karen Warren in there. You know, but, you know, we're going to keep missing things, and I, I just hope to, you know, to, to, to pick up. Uh, yeah, I want, I want the hot new writers. Sure. And, and to be honest, how, how does that come about? Because this is not an open forum. So that, you know, I, I, I just don't have enough lives to read a slush pile. So, <clears throat> so I go on what I read, word of mouth, <coughs> the community, and I'm sure there's a lot of holes in that. I'm sure I'll miss a lot of stuff. But I, I want to try out of sheer unmitigated personal interest. If that makes any sense. No, it, it does. The, I was going to think as well, while, while we've been talking, the other thing that's occurred to me is that the other great strain, just generally in, in genre fiction, but also in Australian science fiction in particular, Australian fiction particularly, has been the rise and, frankly, brilliance of some of our young adult writers. Do you think PS Australia will engage with young adult a lot? I mean, it's not something that's really represented, and I understand why, I think, in Dreaming in the Dark. But when you look around, there are some fabulous, fabulous writers out there writing YA fiction. Is that something you could see engaging with? Yes, I could. And you pointed out you pointed out something wonderful. I.e., you pointed out a real hole in uh, you know in my uh, you know in my vision. In that you know, I mean, Janine writes you know wonderful YA, but I don't have the grasp of YA as I do <laughs> other forms. And I'm going to try to remedy that. Because the writers who who are writing YA that I know are those who have also been you know writing across the you know across genre. So that's something I need to think about and something I'm interested in and something as of right now I I shouldn't admit this 
but I'm more ignorant than an in-quote publisher should be. But, but it raises an interesting question, because YA is, in my mind at least, a highly commercial, uh, a potentially a highly commercial genre. So when you think about small press YA, I'm wondering who those readers are, and and and, and is, when you talk about literary fiction, small press makes all kinds of sense, uh, from from Leonard and Virginia Woolf right down to Jack Dan. If I think about small press YA, I don't know what I'm thinking about. There really isn't much of it. Well, you know. But I, but I can uh, see doing an anthology of it, Jack. Boy, there's some good people. That could be interesting. Yes, yes, that 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 could be. And there are small uh, uh, there are small presses doing YA here, and I'm, I'm my, my my brain is just. Uh, Twelfth Planet do it. Twelfth Planet do a year's best YA. Yeah. Okay. So, and they've been going for uh, three years now, I think, with that. So, yeah. Well, let me, I mean, uh, YA like his dark materials, you know, that kind of work. I mean, I see it as, I see it as, as, as fiction. So, uh, it's something well, Margot Lanigan's stories, to... when Margot Lanigan's stories first appeared in the United States as YA, it frankly yeah. puzzled the hell out of a lot of reviewers. They did not know what on earth makes this YA other than, you know, her prior reputation in Australia. Right, right. Uh, well, you know, you guys have brought up something really interesting, and uh, I'm basically, you know, I will put the I will put the net out, and I will look at work that I think can work on all those levels. Because to me, what I've seen of the of the, of the in quote YA that knocks me out, it simply can be read by. Uh, younger readers and uh, and older readers. And That's I true. Be making, pardon me. Oh, no, I, I, I agree that now, good YA is good uh, fiction. And I shouldn't be making pronouncements about uh, about a category that I'm that I'm not expert in. But uh, you know, I mean, you know, for well, instance, you know, Tolkien was considered. You know, young adult, and I consider it uh, basically anything but. Yeah. Let, let me yeah. ask you this though: You are living in rural Victoria and going up to Melbourne whenever you, you can. I know, and keeping in touch with everybody. You've just completed. And a, I'm looking at the ocean while I'm talking to you. Lucky man! <laughs> Hang on, is that that <laughs> mythical ocean that I never saw? That one. Um, well, that's because you always come when the weather allows you, John. And I anyway, keep telling you, anyway. come when it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, you're down there. You're, you're going to be running PS Australia, which is going to occupy a lot of time. Uh, but, you know, you haven't completed your PhD. You are, to us, primarily a writer. How are you going to possibly find time to continue to, to write, to write your own novels, your own stories, and keep that work out in front of us with all of this demanding your time. That was my exact, my exact question was going to be that. Okay. I'll give you the exact answer I have right now, <laughs> just a minute. Janine has always told me that I work best and actually work when I've got many other things on my plate. It's when I've got that long time, those weeks, days, months, and years, 
to do, you know, to inquire right, that I will look out the window. So at this point, you know, I'm planning new novels, and uh, I will fit it in. If I have to do what I tell, you know, young writers, get up in the morning, you know, give a few... Hello? Hours yeah, yeah. to do your work, you know, give those, those, that kind of if anyone could be used as an example, it's you. <laughs> well, we don't want to both of you down. <laughs> speaking for myself, speaking for myself, I have no idea how to write fiction. Um, but well, I think I know what writing, you're saying. It, but it, it's the same. Well, yeah, I've got it's the same deal in terms of the nonfiction and and and, and everything <laughs> else, and it's the same deal for Jonathan. What was behind Jonathan's question is well, there are two questions really that I wanted to get to before we actually ended this. Uh, speaking right. because we have some listeners here in North America. Yes, there are a lot of us who want to see another Jack Dan novel because they are everyone is more interesting in a different way than the previous one. And I I didn't think you could ever get more interesting than the Memory Cathedral, but it did. The Silent was was interesting in a completely different way. The other question is. When you talk about PS Australia, is everything we're talking about going to be invisible to readers in North America? Okay, well, those are those are uh, <laughs> two separate questions. I realize those are two separate questions. Okay, regarding the first one, I have a new novel called Shadows in the Stone. It's out uh, to publishing in New York. It's uh, a Renaissance novel that 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 basically pushes uh, alternate history to what I consider the edge where you fall off. Uh, <laughs> okay, so that, uh, and the second question, no, I forgot. The second question was, will, will people in North America have any awareness of PS Australia publications? Uh, I think they'll have, Look, the PS Australia books will also be published in in, in Great Britain. Uh, right. I think they will they will have the same kind of awareness that that, that PS has had. Uh, and you know, I'm hoping I'm hoping that this wonderful work will be you know will get seen for awards. Yeah. And you know, when I've got. You know, it's a quite, it's a, it's a different kind of ego. When I'm talking to you guys about, about, you know, PS Australia and anthologies I've edited, I don't consider it to be about me. It's, 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 the, it's, you know, it's the work, it's the writers in the book. So I can brag about them. I'm not bragging about me. Where, when it comes to my own work, I really do shut up. That shut everybody I think your work speaks for itself. I love your work. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I hope that the way it works out is that paradoxically, more from PS Australia means more from Jack Dan. Me too. One last thing. Can I yeah. shove into this conversation? Mm -hmm. Nothing from PS Australia of my work will appear. If I, when I, the work that I've sold to Pete and Mickey, you know, I send it to them and they say yay or nay. 
And I, you know, I, I absolutely don't believe in publishing yourself. It took me years before I would even put a reprint story of my own, uh, in an anthology. And that was because Gardner insisted. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's a real wall there between Jack Dan publisher and Jack Dan insane writer. Just quickly, I mean, I mean, the PS Australia that you're describing to me is a is a is a publisher, hopefully, of a diverse range of physically beautiful books uh, for the deluxe end of of the market here in Australia, which and in the United Kingdom, which I think is a great niche market to go you know market to go for. Will you also be publishing? Do you think? digital editions of your books because you know there's a dark, yes. desire quite often for these things for them to get out uh, more broadly which is related so to the american availability also yes there will be uh again this is being worked out there will, there will be ebooks uh and there will also be i'm not going to say cheap editions but there will be paperback editions uh uh you know to reach you know, to reach the, the, the audience that, you know, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't need or, or want, you know, uh, you know, a, a, basically a signed limited edition. It's interesting because Folio Books is doing the same thing. They have now started putting out paperbacks. Yeah. Okay, so, just to synopsize. We'll try to reach the largest audience that, is, that a, a specialist publisher can reach. And that Mr. Loudmouth can, can <laughs> shout at. So you'll be out, <laughs> you'll be out shouting to everybody about dreaming in the dark in the back third of the year. I mean, August, September, around there. And then, do you think it's likely you'll get another another title out this year for PS, or it'll be moving into 2017? Uh, look, we're probably moving into into 2017. My, my what I want to see right now, I want to see dreaming in the dark as an actual artifact in my hands then you know uh you know so so that's what that's what we were absolutely focused on now and the next thing to talk about is you know is the next book once we've got this wrapped yeah and right. and what we've done you know the get the the uh the pdf that's gone out to 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 the authors there's a lot of mistakes but this is this is one way that a small press i think can get the kind of copy editing that we'd like to see uh, when you don't have uh, you, when you don't have the money to to pay twelve proofreaders. So we proof it. It's being proofed in Great Britain. I do it, and all of the authors are also doing it. So you know, as with small pub- publishing, small press publishing, as w- as you you know, and as the other presses are doing. It's much more interactive in terms of the As a reminder for those of us, this is this is great. But remind us once again when when those of us who are waiting for the next Jack Dan novel can see it and what the title is. Okay, uh, P.S. Great Britain is uh, is is publishing. A collection of my Holocaust stories with an introduction oh, really? by, uh, by the critic Marlene Barr. That's going to be an interesting one to try to find a, a, a niche market for. 
And I've also uh, written an original story for it. <laughs> and, you know, that should be coming out. But to tell you the truth, I've been so obsessed with, uh, with PS Australia that, uh, you know, I'll, you know, it hasn't been put on the back burner, but that, I'm hoping that will be out, uh, you know, next, next year. Okay. And the novel is, is uh, you know, is, is out at publishers, uh, as we speak. Okay. And I'm working on some other stuff. Uh, you know, I want to get, you know, I want to get back. As some of you, of you know, I basically got, uh, grounded for five years in movie hell and, uh, I'm yeah. not out of there. <laughs> well, on that, well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today, Jack. Um, and please accept that, I mean, certainly mine, I'm sure Gary's, uh, best wishes for the launch of PS Australia. I hope we'll see it around for many years to come. Absolutely. Well, it's, look, it's been a pleasure schmoozing with you guys and, uh, I'm going to do my best and, uh, my fingers and toes are crossed, and I'm going to work hard, and books will come out. Excellent. Absolutely. End of thing. <laughs> okay. Well, until we meet again, thank you very much. And, Gary, we'll talk Take next week. Care. We'll talk again next week on the Good Street Podcast. <laughs>